You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. And welcome to In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the 1980s Marvel Comics series, The Nom. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and after a brief departure, we're back to looking at the comics with The Nom number 19, an issue that is one of our first looks at a part of the war we haven't seen yet, which is air combat. Our song this time around is All You Need Is Love by The Beatles, which hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 on August 19, 1967. It had been released as a single that July, but was famously first performed on the Our World special on June 25, 1967. This special was the first international satellite broadcast and was a sort of showcase of world talent featuring creative people from 19 countries from around the world. It was one of the largest television audiences ever at the time, which was estimated somewhere around 400 million viewers. Today, the special is mostly known for the Beatles' live performance of their song, but there were other acts, uh, including famous people such as Maria Callas, who participated in the special. The song did spend that one week on top of the Billboard charts in August of 1967, and it is appropriate for our episode, as this time around we are going to be looking at events in August of 1967. Uh, Nom number 19, it is cover dated June of 1988, and it was released on February 23rd of 1988, and thanks for Mike to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. Milk Run is written by Doug Murray, Wayne Van Zant was the penciler, Jeff Isherwood was the inker, Phil Felix, letterer and colorist, Mike Higgins is the editor, Larry Hama, consulting editor, Pat Redding, managing editor, Mike Rockowitz, assistant editor, Tom DeFalco, the editor-in-chief. The cover by John Beatty shows two F-4 Phantom Twos flying through the air. The one on the bottom, which is closest to the camera, so to speak, is in trouble and the pilot is ejecting. It's a great-looking cover. The jets contrasted against the blue of the sky make for a striking scene that is dramatic, even though there's not a single face shown on the cover. Beatty's covers have been excellent. Uh, he's been kind of sharing cover work with Bob Camp, who's also been doing a solid job. And uh, since they both took over for Michael Golden, who had been doing the covers up until this point. And I'll talk about a little bit more about the artwork uh, after I do the summary of the issue. But it is nice to see that we do still have consistent, solid artwork in this book. We do begin with our stories with those F-4s sitting on a flight deck of the aircraft of an aircraft carrier in the South China Sea. Two pilots are talking about how they had a quite a bit of luck lately with no real problems. Then they head to their plane, which has shamrocks on the tail fin, and we see they're probably part of the VFMA 333 or the Fighting Shamrocks, uh, the background of which I will get into the second half of this episode. So the planes take off on what's supposed to be a milk run, and they, as they fly over the jungle, we see that the men of the 23rd are on the ground, debating with one another about what to do next. Apparently, they're in the correct position, but the Australians that were supposed to meet them are not, or at least they're not there. Uh, just as they're talking about what they need to do, the F-4s fly over, and, well, everybody notices that because they're flying pretty low. 
The plane's mission is to go and take out an NVA armory. One of the planes is able to drop its load before the NVA anti-aircraft starts firing, but soon the anti-aircraft does start firing, and one of them, uh, the pilot's last name being Kelly, winds up being hit and is not only leaking fuel, but is about to go down. The men in the 23rd see the smoke from the plane and first don't think much of it, but then they see that the plane has gone down, and as Dennis hands ice the radio for call for a dust-off, he pauses to notice it as well. Uh, Ice, or Phillips as we know him, mentions that they'll be getting a chopper very soon as we see the enemy soldiers approach the jet. Phillips takes a sawed-off shotgun and puts it with the rest of his stuff, and Dennis asks him what he's, why he's being so discreet. Ice explains that the Geneva Convention says he can't carry it, so he's making sure he doesn't get caught. The choppers pick them up and they're happy to be aboard, especially considering it's about to rain. As they're flying out, the chopper, one of the choppers picks up the Mayday from the F-4 and heads out there. At that moment, the two aviators are hiding in the jungle as the enemy looks for them. One of them, Roger, is very hurt, and his friend has his pistol out and keeps telling him he's going to be okay. The choppers carrying the many of the 23rd lands and takes out several of the enemy soldiers who have been approaching the airplane, but one of the choppers is taken out by an RPG. The pilots are knocked out, and the men get out of the chopper and begin firing and rescue our two downed pilots. Clark tends to the two wounded chopper pilots, as well as Raj, and gets them onto the one good chopper, leaving the rest of the men to hump it back. Phillips tells everyone to saddle up, and the guys are about to leave, just as the VC pops out from behind some brush and begins firing. Pig starts firing back and charges hard toward the jungle, much to Phillips' dismay, and then after they take care of Charlie, Ice lays into, Phil- into Pig for being so stupid. Pig says, we took care of Charlie, didn't we? Phillips asks Clark for an update on the condition of the pilot, and he says he'll be okay, but he can't walk. Because they need to get out of there right away, the men construct a makeshift stretcher and carry him through the jungle with them as he remarks that things look very different from the, from the perspective of the jungle floor. Much later, as the platoon holds up for the night, Kelly, the pilot, tells the men to call him by his call sign, Irish, and talks with them about the sea rations they're eating, which apparently pale in comparison to what the Navy feeds the Marines. He shares tales of steak, salad, soup, and, well, he can't say too much before everyone wants him to stop because they're starting to get jealous. He then says if they get him out of there, he'll send them steaks with all the trimmings. Clark tells him they have a deal and it's time to turn tune in. Later, we see a VC sneak up on the sleeping platoon and come in upon them with knives, but it's only a nightmare that Irish is having because he wakes up screaming. Clark shuts him up and tells him everything's okay, but I says, well, yeah, it is, but they'll definitely have to get out of there because it, it's obviously that they were heard. Irish apologizes, and Clark says not to worry, and then he likes his steak rare. The rest of the night is uneventful, and when the next morning comes dry and clear, the men are able to call for a dust-off, and they load Irish onto a chopper. When they land, he's placed on a gurney, and as they are rolling him away, he tells Clark that they saved his life, and he doesn't know how to thank them. Clark replies, just don't forget about our steaks, sir, and keep that napalm coming. Several days later, the men of the 23rd are spending a rainy afternoon playing poker when they're called into Roland's office. Roland addresses Ice and the guys who had been out in the jungle most of the issue and says that they need to get his stuff out of there and save some for him. We see that what has arrived for the guys are steaks, vegetables, soup, dessert, and wine. And as the guys carry the steak dinners back to the hooch, Clark says, Thanks, Irish. Thanks a lot.
One of the things that has been great about the NOM overall, but which is particularly great about this post-Ed Marks era, is that most of the issues are good jumping on points. There's no exposition of characters here, aside from maybe Irish, but that's not necessary. As with a number of the issues so far, the series serve well to be a snapshot of the war, and here we get a slight complication on a routine mission, but one that doesn't go horribly awry, and gives us an introduction to something we haven't seen before. Earlier in the series, in one of the letter columns... Someone suggested that Doug Murray do an episode about paratroopers or something. And I have to say that I'm sure he got plenty of those letters. You know, uh, why don't you do this, why don't you do that? After all, you have people who are in the war or who are currently in the military or were, or were, are the sons or daughters of people who were in the military. And they're reading the comics, so it makes total sense that those fans would want to see how the comic book handles like their own personal branches of the military or their own jobs or their own units or their own experiences. So what we've got here are pilots of F-4s who are mainly used for napalm drops and bombing runs, which is pretty much what's going on here. The basic mission, as we see, is to find a couple of NBA weapons depots, take them out, and go home. There isn't any sort of utmost secrecy or strategic importance to the mission. There's no Top Gun-style dogfighting. The plane gets shot down from an anti-aircraft gun, which is a perfectly reasonable enemy defense, and that's handled well, bringing both F-4 pilots and the men of the 23rd together. So what we get is a look at something different without it being, okay, today's episode is about fire pilots, kids, or something like that. We still get the characters we've been following for the past few issues, and the new ones are introduced pretty well because it's done quickly. It doesn't take us out of the overall story. Now, I guess it's a little bit convenient that one of the choppers that was supposed to come and pick all of them up would be taken out with an RPG so that the soldiers could bond with their new friend. But that's not anything to contrive, especially since, as we've seen in the last few issues, the villages in the countryside are, well... For lack of a better word, they're crawling with enemy soldiers, and we've seen soldiers arriving at the crash site. So at the moment where Isis is shotgun ready, kind of makes me think of that scene from Aliens where Hicks takes out the shotgun and he says, I'd like to keep this handy for close encounters. I heard that. But for the most part, we have a knight in the jungle and a guy with nightmares and then a cute little ending with Irish sending the guys some steaks and everything else they'll need for dinner. It's it's all right. I don't expect big sweeping changes to the, to the lives of the characters every issue. And after Alarnik was fragged last time around, I guess it's nice to have a milk run in a sense for one for one month. And really why the story isn't bad by any means. It is, you know, it's a good 28 pages. Um, what sells the issue is Wayne Van Sant and Jeff Isherwood on art and, and Phil Felix's colors. Uh, the three of them working in tandem provide us with a gritty, realistic look at what's going on. Van Zandt has still, still has a real talent for drawing the planes, which are nice, slick, and clean. And when contrasted to the gritty, dirty guys of the 23rd of the Jungle, it works very well. Isherwood is a very skillful inker, and his style complements Van Sant to make the pencil seem less stiff, and the action scenes are done extremely well. When Irish can't keep control of his plane and he knows that he's done for, Van Sant gives him a great look of panic, and his shot of the plane flying through the air on fire is done on a completely white panel with the plane and the smoke silhouetted, which we're seeing from the point of view of the 23rd. And the art is consistent and solid throughout the entire story. So the issue, well, 
there isn't really isn't much to it. You know, it doesn't advance a lot of story very often. In fact, I guess if you kind of wanted to look at it, you might accuse it of being an inventory piece. But at the same time, it's a nice one. It's definitely a keeper. Uh, you know, and it and, and Murray can get away with this because he's on this real time format, so he doesn't have to have everything you know important, something important happen every month in every of, of the story, and. Um, we'll see next issue some of the stuff, some of the resolution and, and, and aftermath of the Alarnic fragging, but it makes sense that it might take two months to do that. So, you know, I can give him a pass on something that's like, okay, we're doing an airplane story, but uh, and it's not as exciting or there's not as much character development, but you know, it's good, and and it's still it's still a keeper. It still makes me want to keep reading the series, and uh, I guess that's. Just about all you can ask for every once in a while from a comic book. When I get back, I'll talk historical context, letters, and ads. Gathered together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the Toy Geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron. Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind. It's dinner for geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. The F-4 fighter was developed by McDonnell Douglas in 1960, and it was one of the primary aircraft used for combat during the Vietnam War. The fighter was used for both ground attack and reconnaissance, although a quick look shows that they were also involved in quite a bit of dogfighting as well. The designations on the planes is drawn in the comics as VF, VMFA243, and the tail has three shamrocks, shamrocks painted on it. But the designation actually doesn't exist. The fighting shamrocks were designated VMFA333, and I'm not sure if this is a deliberate error on the part of Doug Murray or Wayne Van Zant, or if this was uninten- unintentional. I have a feeling that in a later issue, someone will provide them with a correction in a letter column. I know that Murray likes to be as historically accurate as he possibly can, too, so uh, maybe there is an actual reason as to why, you know, why the numbers, or maybe I'm just making a mistake here. The fighting Shamrocks, by the way, uh, were the last squadron to fight using F-4s and were decommissioned in 1992. Now, shotguns in combat. Uh, Shotguns were allowed in combat in wars. There are specific types of shotguns called combat shotguns. What ICE is carrying has a barrel that's shorter than a normal shotgun, or at least how it's drawn, so it's possible that he's carrying a sawed-off shotgun. I tried to find out whether or not the sawed-off shotgun is indeed illegal, according to the rules of the various Geneva Conventions, but I honestly couldn't get a straight answer when I looked stuff up. It's possible that the gun, or at least the ammunition, fell under a gray area and therefore might be considered quote-unquote illegal. It's also possible that ICE has to hide the gun because while it's technically not illegal, his superior officers strongly discourage its use, and the whole Geneva Convention claim is akin to maybe an urban legend? Not sure. 
Now for August 1967 itself. On August 7th, the People's Republic of China agreed to give North Vietnam aid in the form of a grant. On August 9th, the Senate began closed-door hearings on the impact of civilian advisors on military planning. During those hearings, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara testified to how much the North bombing of North Vietnam was costing and that it was not having much of an impact on the enemy, saying that nothing short of the virtual annihilation of North Vietnam and all its people would be necessary for the bombing to be successful. Also on August 9th, the Marines land launched Operation Cochise, was, which was an operation against the 3rd NVA Regiment in the Quang In Province. According to the site MilitaryWives.net, which has a pretty comprehensive summary of this operation, General Ahu's concept of operations for Cochise consisted of three phases. The first phase involved the insertion of two 5th Marines battalions south of Nui Lok Son outpost between the tactical elements of the 2nd NVA Division and its suspected logistic base. The two battalions were to drive east toward friendly blocking positions and eliminate communist tactical forces in the vicinity of the logistic installations. Phase 2 called for a hell lift of two battalions into the suspected enemy base areas, and the third phase, a two battalion sweep from the Hiepduk region northeast to, to Quezon. August 18th, California Governor Ronald Reagan says that the United States should get out of Vietnam because, quote, too many qualified targets have put, been put off limits to bombing. August 21st, the Chinese shoot down two US, U.S. fighter bombers that accidentally crossed into their airspace during a bombing campaign in North Vietnam. Other non-Vietnam-related events in August of 67. On August 14th, Wonderful Radio London, a famous pirate radio station out operating out of the North Sea, is officially shut down. As on August 15th, the United Kingdom Marine Broadcasting Offenses Act, which makes pirate radio illegal, goes into effect. On August 27th, Beatles manager Brian Epstein is found dead in his bedroom. He'd overdosed on barbiturates. This wound up having a profound effect on the band as John Lennon would eventually note in a Rolling Stone interview in 1970 that it was basically the beginning of the end of the Beatles. Epstein is a 2014 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, by the way. And finally, on August 30th, Thurgood Marshall is sworn in as the first African-American Supreme Court Justice. Uh, this information comes courtesy of both Wikipedia and the History Place. Letters this time around incoming. We have somebody, Rhonda Smith, writing in saying she's been a confirmed fan of the NOM since issue one. And uh, she's probably in the minority among your readers because she's a girl. But she says she finds it as interesting as any man might. She says, An interesting bit of trivia I found is that some of this name speak was used in the movie Aliens. She's talking about like the, the nom notes, the, the, the slang, Aliens by the Colonial Marines. For example, Dust Off, which is pretty self-explanatory in reference to planes and personnel pickups. The characters all see so real. Uh, thank you for including the corruption that must have existed there, too. Any chance Polkow will ever get to knock that gold tooth out someday? She's talking about uh, <laughs> top. There's an interesting letter from Shane Mettler from Val Valrico, Florida. He says, Dear guys, I got a friend, a Vietnamese friend, and I'd like to tell you his story. He remembers like it was yesterday. His village was unlucky. It was bombed. He lost all his relations except his father and his brother. The funny thing is, we bombed him, a South Vietnamese village. 
Anyway, later his village was reconstructed and was attacked by the VC. He, his dad, and his brother were thrown in prison because they held his father responsible for killing seven VC soldiers. His brother and his dad were able to bribe his way out, and he fled to Bangkok and got on a plane to the U.S. About this time, they took a photo of him, which he's shown me. He stands against a bamboo background holding up a number. L130062. On the back of the photo, it reads Bangkok Refugee Committee, shirts one, shoes zero, socks one, shorts one, blankets zero. He arrived here in 81 and has lived on his own ever since. He has a job that pays not enough, but not enough. He's about $3,000 in debt. If he goes back to visit his relatives, he'll be killed. He has to live with all that, and he's still only a senior in high school. And I thought I had it bad. Please believe me, it'll mean a lot to Ket, Q-E-T, Ket, to know he's got some friends there somewhere. And Doug Murray replies, you kept the best of of all of us here at the NAM and tell him he's got friends, good ones like you. We have a letter from Joshua Kupetz of Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania, and he loves he read issue 15 he loved the issue and he says in regards to your letter column i have noticed that unlike gi joe or other marvel comics your letter column has some down-to-earth stuff none of this praise about art or things but most about things that happened in nam i guess this comes from having a real account to base your book on another thing i have noticed is that you really only have older people's letters appear in the letter page is this because you think that it's more important to have letters about the real nam on the page or has this been happening unconsciously i'm 13 and i am think i am capable of writing letters as well as most of well, I don't really want to condemn your book since there is nothing to really condemn. And until you have a Nom Transformers crossover, make mine the Nom. And he says, P.S. Could you have a book about a soldier who goes home and is one of the many that has come become dependent on some sort of drug? I'm sure that it has really happened. Doug replies, Dear Josh, uh, I try to use the best, most interesting letters that come in without regard for the age of the writer. Unfortunately, due to the subject matter of the nom, this gives an advantage to the older writers who really lived through the war. Sorry. As for your idea about an addictive returning, it certainly happened, but I don't know if I could do it under the comics code. We'll have to give it some thought, though. Thanks, Doug. The final letter is from Rick D. Mulchin of Knoxville, Tennessee. He said that he just read at issue 15. He said it... it brought back memories. He's in the Army Reserved. He just got back from basic training and stationed at Fort Jackson. And he says the images, uh, which is in the, which is in the actual uh, issue, and he says the images of Tank Hill, which is the, the nickname of Fort Jackson, are still the same except for the bunks on page 13, panel 3. There are always two foot lockers at the end of the bunks. The Vietnam War never had heroes like Rambo or Chuck Norris, but you are my heroes to the war by keeping the stories so true to life. Thank you for showing the home front in issue 15. Do it again sometime. And and they say, Wayne Van Sant made a special trip to Fort Jackson to ensure that his artwork be as realistic as possible. He'll be glad to know he succeeded. All right, Nom Notes this time around. We've got a bunch of them. AA anti-aircraft, ACAC in World War II, often missiles in Vietnam. Beast, slang for the M60, also called the pig because it was difficult to handle. Bird, any flying machine, chopper, fixed wing. Bought the farm, got killed, acquiring that six by six bit of land or a grave. Being smoke, bring smoke, give it to them, done by a bad dude. Charlie, of course, the VC. Chinese fire drill, any scene of mass confusion which much, with much screaming and shouting. Sea rats or sea rations, barely edible food, usually left over from World War II. In World War II, they left ate leftovers from World War One. <laughs> 
Diddy Mao, get out quickly. Five buy, loud and clear, five being high quality, one being low. Hard charging or charger, an aggressive and eager soldier, not necessarily complimentary. A milk run is an easy mission, usually given late in a tour. Most Kosh, real fast or right away. NVN, North Vietnamese, the other guys we were fighting. Pop some caps, start shooting. Pop some smoke, set off a smoke canister. Punji stakes, sharpen stakes put in pits to try to injure walking GIs, a well-known booby trap. Rock and roll, fire on full automatic. Slicks, passenger carrying helicopters, usually the ubiquitous Huey. Tail end Charlie, last guy in a formation, the guy who watches the rear. The world back in the good old US of A. And Z, the DMZ, the supposed demarcation between North Vietnam and South Vietnam over which no troops are supposed to cross. Ads this time around. Oh, I love this one. There in the inside back in the inside front cover is the now you can be the next Joe GI Joe figure you can be a real American hero and get a GI Joe action figure of you plus your own personalized file card. I had this thing. It was so cool. You basically you fill out your name and you make up a code name. I think mine was Man Eater. Don't ask me where I got that one. It wasn't from the Hall and Oates song. I think it was because I was, I was like mad eating shark or something. I don't know. And then uh, you, you, what would you characterize yourself as? You're a leader. You're always in control. You're a corpsman. You're the backbone of the group. You're a loner. You value getting the job done. You're your best win in high in high stress situations when endurance is called for. When faced with a difficult decision in the heat of action. Four, G.I. Joe team members consider you to be a good friend, the type of man who inspires respect, an offbeat combination of military skill and artistic talent, a maverick. What's your service branch, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, or Coast Guard? Your primary military specialty, we've got infantry, medic, airborne, pilot, intelligence, artillery, armor, SEAL, communications, jungle warfare, special forces, and martial arts. Your secondary specialty, computers, drill instructor, rifle instructor, laser weapons, combat engineer, gunner's mate, counter-espionage, radar, electronics, machinist, or frogman. Your weapons expert, the M16, the XM76 grenade launcher, the M2 Browning caliber heavy machine gun, law rocket system, XMLR laser rifle, U21, the M7 flamethrower, reflex crossbow, M11 submachine gun, M60, M1911 AT auto pistol, M32 pulverizer, expert at all NATO and Warsaw packed small arms. Seriously, there's a lot of freaking weaponry. I mean, I was 11, 10, 11 years old around this time. You know, I was in like the 5th, 4th, 5th, 6th grade or so. I would have been in the 5th grade going into the 6th grade. There's a lot of weaponry <laughs> for a fifth grader to know. Uh, are you martial arts expert? You get to check too. Uh, taekwondo, kung fu, jiu-jitsu, zen sword, karate, or throwing stars. And then your schooling or training. Was it in the airborne, recondo school, special forces school, ranger school, flight warrant officers, jungle warfare, desert training, SEAL school, military intelligence, and emergency medicine? And as, you, as a member of the Joe team, you get a Joe action figure. And it's basically a guy in kind of like a generic combat uniform, but he's got like a, a metal helmet on so that it's generic enough so that it doesn't look like you or anybody else. You get a steel brigade patch and your file card. Um, this also this, this was awesome. This was so cool. I, I loved having my own Joe figure when I was a kid. It was one of the. This was toward the end of me liking GI Joe, but I, I do remember that 
I was, this is pretty, this is pretty cool when I got it. It also reminds me of when I was, uh, my, my friend Dennis, who was one of my roommates in college, uh, was ROTC and he went into the army. And I remember at one point getting one of his pictures of him in uniform and making him photoshopping a, a f- making him a GI Joe file card. Cause we just had this running joke that like Dennis was, you know, basically Dennis was GI Joe. So <laughs> that was pretty good. I probably have the graphics somewhere too. I don't remember what his code name was, though. We have a comic book convention ad. We have uh, the two, like, order the pins, um, you know, where that we had last time around. Uh, we have an American Comics ad. We have, uh, let's see, Adventurers and Adventurers Book 2, both of which are hot. Um, we have, ooh, ooh. The Nom is blisteringly hot. That's pretty awesome. Wow. For the first print of issue one is going for $15. I don't honestly know. This Marvel would reprint their titles. They would do second prints. Because I had a number of G.I. Joe issues that were hard to find in second print that were cheaper to get out of the back issue bins. Because I honestly wanted to read them um, back in the day. Aside from maybe ads that were current to the printing run... I don't know how you would distinguish uh, between the first print and the second print because from what I understand, there was nothing in the indicia that that said that it was the second print. But, you know, who knows? But, yeah, 15 bucks, And uh, two and three were both going for eight. So this is, this is pretty big. And then the first trade was out, by the way. Uh, the NOM was early on, was one of the early on trade paperbacks that Marvel put out. Uh, You know, they they ended up printing issues one through about 12 or 13 in trade. Uh, I have two of those trades, uh, the the first um, and the third one. And one day I'll probably just get the second one off of eBay. You find it every once in a while and you can probably get it. I usually see it for cheap. Uh, this issue, I believe, is collected. I think I want to say the nom is collected up until about twenty-five or thirty, and I'll, I'll go back and look at that. Um, ooh, the Punisher is hot, and prices are soaring. Uh, so the new Silver Surfer series is out, and that's hot. And the new uh, Green Arrow series is so we're we're getting into this is the late eighties. Some of the stuff is pretty uh, pretty big. Um, at this point, you could get Amazing Spider-Man three hundred for only a buck fifty. Two fifty-two is going for four dollars though. But so yeah, so let's see what else we got. We have another hodgepodge ad which is laid out horribly. There's all this white space. You can finish high school through the mail. You can learn to mind read fast and easy. There's a free skaters catalog. Um, comic conventions. There's a New York comic convention. Ticketron is selling. Is Ticketron still Ticketron's not around anymore. There's an ad, a house ad for the Typhoid Mary storyline by Anne Nascenti, John Romita Jr., and Al Williamson in Daredevil. She has to kill him. She loves him. I'm not familiar with Daredevil beyond um, the Frank Miller stuff from the beginning of the decade, uh, the Bendis stuff, and the Kevin Smith stuff. Another hodgepodge ad. This one, we've got Marvel Universe stickers. We've got Charles Atlas. Baseball Fever Catch It, an exclusive offer to start your 1988 player card collection with any of the 26 complete teams. I actually had a complete set of the 88 Mets and the 86 Mets, but that's because um, about a year or two after the comic store opened in my hometown, a baseball card store opened too, and we went to that baseball card store for a while, but that closed 
at one point. That place always smelled like cigar smoke, too. Uh, like tobacco. Marvel Supermart is around. Bullpen bulletins this time around. Uh, Comics Buyer's Guide Fan Awards for 87. Uh, there is some information on how to vote. The profile is on Jim Scalacrip. And, ooh, item. You wouldn't think that annihilating a major U.S. city would create such a stir, but when word of Pittsburgh impending destruction in New Universe's The Pit bookshelf edition leaked out, the Marvel officers were stormed with interesting and interested and indignant inquiries from the various media of the doomed city, well doomed in the New Universe anyway. And apparently it made at least the local news around there. This was an effort to... I don't know if it's supposed to wrap up or reboot or get some more interest in the new universe, but obviously it didn't do uh, that well. What else is going on? There are a couple of uh, trades out this month. The Punisher and Daredevil trade paperback, which collects Punishers 182, 183, and 184. A cloak and dagger graphic novel. They're going, they're in the midst of preparing a profusely illustrated coffee table book telling the history of Marvel Comics from the 1930s to the present for publication in late 88. Unfortunately, our archives don't contain everything we'd like to include in the book. We're especially interested in locating unpublished covers, uninked pencil pages by Marvel artists, preliminary design sketches for Marvel characters, and old photos of the Marvel offices and staff. If you happen to have such a collector's pieces in your edition, in your collection, we'd like to arrange to copy them so they can be included in the book. Write us in care of Mark Grunewald. I want to say this eventually became the Les Daniels book, which came out in about 1990. I actually have that on my shelf. I'm looking right at it. Uh, but that that is a really cool book. Uh, the, I have the DC one as well, and I have the Superman and Batman ones. And eventually, one day, we'll pick up the Wonder Woman one just to be a complete, completist. Uh, I know he's got some other books. The late Les Daniels had some other books as well. The subscription ad has Doc Ock standing behind bars saying he'll ne- for f- wondering why they're talking about anything free because he'll never be free of that pesky wall crawler. And the next best thing is four extras you should when you subscribe. Back inside cover, they've got the power, you've got the control. It's an ad for Jackal and Contra. Remember, kids, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, be a start. And on the back, Crystal, Clear Catastrophe, The Forgotten Realms, The Crystal Shard, which is one of many, many, many role-playing ads that we will see in Marvel Comics through the years. And that's it. That's it for this uh, episode of In Country, this issue of the NOM. Next time around, I'll be back with issue 20. More historical context, letters, and ads as usual. So until then, take care and thanks for listening. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics, the NOM. The NOM and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom.